Hi, hello, and welcome. This is the Zonecast, where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. And today we have with us on the show, uh, Simon uh, Birchua. He is the founder and CEO of Hume. Uh, hi, Simon. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm, I'm good. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this uh, particular interview and learning about yourself and also about Hume. So can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Um, yeah, of course. So um, today, obviously, uh, I, I'm actually the co-CEO at Humi, uh, where I was also a co-founder, uh, helping get the business up and running uh, during 2016. Um, but my background originally was, was in finance. Uh, I graduated from university with an economics degree, um, had really leaned into the maths over the course of my sort of high school and university careers. And, and jumped directly into a finance role at a boutique investment bank um, here in Toronto. Um, spent several years working in equity research uh, before deciding to make the jump into the, the more sort of traditional tech world. Um, 2012, 2013, I uh, started my first company. Uh, it's called One Local. Uh, still operating today. Um, interesting business. Uh, and, and it was a wild ride as a as sort of a first startup um, going from you know, launching with one idea, pivoting several times before finding really strong product market fit. Um, and then, you know, years later, again, starting my second company, you know, there, there's, there's probably a lot within there that I could dive into, but that, that's kind of the, the personal and professional background at, at a high level. Yes, so, so my next question is, uh, can you tell us about uh, Humi and how the idea came about? Yeah, so I mean, having, having been a part of um, starting a company previously here in Toronto, um, you know, I had been intimately involved with, you know, running payroll, getting the backbone of the business established um, and, and managing, you know, HR, payroll and, and benefits um, over the course of, of, of that business. And, you know, like myself, my, my co-founders in Humi all have had similar experience launching and building businesses in Canada, um, you know, and having to manage HR, payroll and benefits all, all by themselves. And if you flash back to, you know, when, when I was starting my first company and when they were all starting theirs or, or a part of really young companies themselves, you know, there was nothing that existed to support small businesses in any respect with regard to these three core functions of a business's back office. Um, and really, you know, we all felt the pains together of, of that lack of software and lack of support. Um, you know, while we were launching our businesses down south in the States, um, several companies had popped up to support smaller companies and smaller businesses in their, you know, efforts to streamline and reduce the amount of administrative work that goes into, you know, managing HR payroll and, and benefits. And, and, we were looking to the south and seeing these tools pop up and feeling, you know, kind of left out, to be honest, uh, without access to those tools ourselves. And we realized that there was a real pressing need for somebody to introduce uh, HR, payroll and benefit software for small businesses in the Canadian landscape. And, and that opportunity and that pain that we felt really intimately ourselves is kind of what drove the, the initial business launch. So I'm, I'm curious, like, um... I would assume given that the technology age that we live in and the innovative age that we live in, 
that there would already be a software for payroll and benefits. But uh, I'm curious, so is this something new uh, in the marketplace or were there existing solutions and you're offering something more innovative and better? Um, I guess you could say there were existing solutions, but none of them had been crafted specifically for smaller businesses. So if you look at the Canadian landscape of payroll alone right now, um, roughly, I believe the most recent number that I've seen was 70 or 75% of all Canadian businesses are using ADP and Ceridian to manage their payroll. And the truth is that both of those tools are built on a backbone that's meant to support much larger organizations. You know, one of ADP's greatest advantages is that you can pay employees in almost any country in the world from one place. And that's fantastic. But that's typically a need that only very large companies might have. And as a result, implementing tools like ADP or Ceridian, either on the payroll or HR side, but particularly on the HR side, is either a very expensive or very painful process for a small company to go through. Um, and, and then if you flip and look at the benefits landscape, you know, there actually hasn't been much innovation either north or south of the border with regard to building um, software tools that ease the administration of group benefits for companies. Instead, most, most businesses today even still rely on their carrier and the software that they provide in order to you know, manage their, their benefits experience and otherwise are only supported through manual processes at the broker level. So you know, in, in some ways, there, there have been pre-existing tools. Um, but in other ways, you know, where we focus, which is on the smaller side of the of businesses, you know, call it one to 500 or even one to a thousand, there haven't been tools that have been as um, laser focused on on achieving the things that those smaller businesses need, which are primarily focused on ease of use um, and and, uh, and coming in at the right price point. Mm, so I guess I guess your differentiation uh, point is that you have made it easy and more an easy to use uh, software solution for small businesses. Yeah, and I think that that same principle can can apply all the way up to to enterprises, but it's less of a priority for those larger businesses. Um, larger businesses are going to have needs like having to pay people in five different countries that ease of use can't solve. Um, but I think that that but but and so for smaller businesses, that decision making criteria around ease of use is much more important. Um, but I do think that that's still a, a, a pain point that um, larger businesses feel in trying to manage their software suite. Um, often enterprise tools are built just to be functional and not to be easy to use. And, and that can be very frustrating for end users. And I think that there's still a lot of room for innovation, you know, all the way up to enterprise scale within this space, um, just given the lack of focus on that component over, over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, when was uh, Humi founded? Uh, the company was formally founded in 2016, um, but we launched out of Y Combinator uh, in, the in the winter 2017 batch, uh, which would have been, you know, at the very outset of 2017. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And uh, recently, uh, Humi has been in the news for closing their uh, seed round of 15, um, sorry, Series A round of $15 million. So can you tell us uh, how was your experience uh, uh, fundraising during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, we were fortunate that most of the work that went into our fundraise, um, we had put in, you know, before the pandemic had hit. Um, and again, you know, that kind of comes back to uh, just general fundraising timelines often being longer than many people would assume. 
Um, you know, we were fortunate to have not spent years fundraising, only several months, um, but but still uh, having kicked off and, and even closed some of the capital before the pandemic had really hit, um, put us at an advantage. You know, that being said, um, you know, we we had not completed the round at the at the outset of the pandemic, and we were concerned that our sort of last investor may may back out. Um, we were fortunate that our business has been, uh, in some ways, positively impacted uh, by the change in in sort of work culture and the shift to working from home, and so we were uh, able to get everything else across the finish line. But um, but I think that the that the gen in general the fundraising atmosphere has shifted, and I'd be happy to sort of detail the way that I think about that, if that's yeah. of interest. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell us more. Yeah. So, um, I mean, again, th this is less so from from personal experience, just given that most of our work had already been um, completed by the time the pandemic had hit. But nonetheless, you know, we were coming off of uh, almost every day engagement with the VC community, and and since closing our Series A, our lead investor, Tribe Capital, has been very involved with um, helping us navigate decision make key decisions on a go forward basis including the way that we think about fundraising. And so, you know, we've been picking people's brains as to what's going on now and, and what we should expect in the future as we may look to raise more capital down the line. And, and really, I think that what the, the easiest way to sum up what's gone on over the last few months is that at the outset of the pandemic, almost every single business, even those that were going to end up performing, were hit in a, in a negative way. A lot of people were pressing pauses on, on decisions. And that, that extends all the way through to fundraising. A lot of VCs thought that perhaps the um, the pandemic was going to be short lived, or the impact was going to be short lived in terms of the way that they operated their business, and so there wasn't a real rush to um, figure out how to deploy capital in a, in, a, in a world where you can't take in person meetings. So there was a bit of a lull over the course of uh, March and April, not only because of the structural changes in communication and, and how you go about raising around, but also because of the uncertainty around what was going to be impacted. And when those impacts are going to be felt from an economic perspective, um, but I think that you know, as as uh, governments rolled out stimulus packages uh, both in Canada and the U.S. and in many industries started to um, sort of normalize, there was a there was a lot of pent up supply of investor capital that started to make its way back into the into the landscape. Um, you know, from from what we're seeing and hearing from from friends and and from VCs alike is that. There is um, there's still appetite for investing so long as the business is performing today, and and that most of these uh, most VCs and most investors have adapted to this new normal where you know you might not be able to meet the founders or you know the management team from a business in person before you're able to make an investment, and you're still instead forced to you know run that process online and 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 deal with a lot of decision making through a more data centric uh, approach. Mm -hmm. So. Um... How many months did the whole fundraising uh, process take? Uh, do, and did you uh, start before the pandemic or did you start um, fundraising after the pandemic had begun? Yeah, so our, our fundraise definitely started before the pandemic. Um, the equity component took us probably about, um, I'm going to say six months, uh, you know, from, from start to end of running our process to actually being closed, um, which I believe is somewhere around the average for a Series A that gets completed. Of course, completing a Series A um, is still really challenging. Um, and then, you know, we we've also added a, de a debt component to, to the round, and that's taken several months longer. Um, you know, again, just just based on um, you know timelines and 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 a number of other things. But 
it, sometimes debt can happen faster and equity can take longer. So I think that to, for each business, it's kind of unique. It's like, a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very uh, company specific experience. Mm -hmm. And are you able to disclose the valuation at which you raised uh, 15 million? Um, I prefer not to disclose the specifics, but, you know, we were in and around what you would consider sort of averages from the perspective of dilution. And that's the way that we, you know, we at least internally were looking at the fundraise was managing dilution appropriately and making sure that we didn't take on too much uh, too early, um, making sure that our employees, our team, prior investors are all taken care of and not being washed out. And so, you know, if you look at industry averages, we sat on, you know, I think the right side of what, what averages from a dilution perspective. Mm -hmm. So you founded Humi in 2016, and then um, uh, it, was, it was several years ago. And um, before you started fundraising, I'm guessing you had some level of revenues and profits coming into the business? Um, yeah, so we had also previously raised a seed round uh, coming out of Y Combinator in 2017. So at the very outset of the business, we were fortunate enough to, to bootstrap to our first several hundred thousand dollars in, in ARR. Um, it was the nature of the uh, group benefit space specifically. A lot of contracts are paid up front and that was able to fund, um, and a couple large deals early, we were able to fund the initial operation. Um, but we were fortunate to get into Y Combinator um, again in that winter 2017 batch, which runs January, February, and March. And that program is very firmly focused on helping the companies figure out how to be successful but also figure out how to raise capital, which is a really important part of being successful as a young startup. Um, and we came out of that, that batch, um, you know, with some meaningful traction and were able to raise roughly $3 million right out of the gate. Um, and that's the capital that was able to help us grow the business, grow the team and get to our series A. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting um, when, when you have, a company which has had traction, been in business for a few years, and there is, let's say, revenues or profits coming in, you, I guess, have the option of growing the business organically by reinvesting the revenues or the profits. And on the other hand, you also have the second option, which is, you know, seed funding and Series A funding. Um, so was that a difficult decision for you to decide whether to grow the business organically by bootstrapping and reinvesting the profits? or um, seek investment from investors and uh, lose some equity and uh, future profits. So was that yeah. a difficult decision you had uh, for you to make? I mean, I think that for every founder, it should be a difficult decision in that, yeah. you know, everyone should be hyper-focused on retaining equity where possible. Um, yeah. and, and, and retaining control of the business can be very important as well, um, depending on who the investors are that, that you're working with. but. For us, it was almost um, necessary that we took outside capital where we're playing in an industry that's somewhat established and we're building something that's quite um, quite grand in scope. Without outside capital, it may have taken us a decade just to get to where we are today. Um, uh -huh. and, and that's probably what we're going to remain true on a go forward basis for us to achieve the goals that we have, which are quite, quite grand and, and you know, are quite capital intensive as it relates to um, not only building out software, but participating in highly regulated industries um, that 
you know, to reach the highest levels require large capital requirements. Our expectation is that we'll have to continue to raise money in order to expedite what would otherwise be an extremely long journey. Mm-hmm. And do you think that uh, investors have become more cautious during the pandemic? Uh, and do you think they are more cautious with their spending and they're more uh, stringent with the due diligence? And do you think they're taking more equity because uh, because of the pandemic? Um, that's hard to say. I'm, I'm guessing that um, you know, Crunchbase might have some data on how dilution has changed over the course of the last couple of months. You know, just anecdotally speaking, I would expect that perhaps that that's the case, but I, I certainly haven't seen the evidence myself that, that it's played out that way. Um, you know, in terms of additional due diligence or, or, or willingness to, to, to invest, I think that criteria has been changing for quite some time and that this is almost the icing on the cake. If you look at the failed IPOs of WeWork, and in, in some cases, in some ways, I guess you could claim, you know, several other tech companies who have gone public and not been profitable, somewhat failing in the public markets. Um, ever since, you know, you could say early or mid 2019, there's been momentum shifting towards the concept of profitability within the tech startup ecosystem as being a more important piece of criteria to be investing on. And so I think that now, you know, with a pandemic and, and, and a lot of uncertainty on a go forward basis, you know, there's a... There, there should be, and I believe there is, an increased emphasis on margin, profitability, and and strong business models. Um, but if anything, it's just a shift in terms of, you know, some taking more uh, or having more of a focus on things that were always important. Um, like it's not like these are these are new concepts that that were being completely disregarded in the past, but they're just being more pushed to the forefront now that, you know, there there is uncertainty around when the next fundraise may come, or you know. When, what type of valuation a business will receive if they don't have profits or strong revenue. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's interesting. And um, when you uh, try to find investors, uh, is there a particular criteria that you have for yourself uh, when you try to find investors? And would your investors uh, add anything else to the business besides uh, financial capital? Yeah, I mean, so we... we uh, we think of investors very similar to, you know, team members on our team. You know, we want to see cultural alignment um, and, and, and sort of alignment in terms of values, you could say. Um, so, you know, we, we have a real firm focus on hiring people and working with people who are really, you know, kind, who care about one another, um, who, who have, you know, a good moral compass um, and, and who are, uh, you know, similar to us, you know, somewhat, um, laid back, friendly, and, and open-minded. Um, you know, of course, having industry experience and and perspective on what it is that we're building is also really important. But you know, again, in our space, you're not necessarily going to find an investor who only focuses on HR or payroll. Um, you know, where we were lucky to land is with a lead investor, uh, Tribe Capital, who is um, not only extremely aligned from a values perspective, but also very helpful. So, so you mentioned that. Um, or you, you asked, you know, are our investors expected to do more than just provide money? You know, at the end of the day, I don't think that a business should ever be relying on their investors to carry their their operation. I mean, that it, the the weight of that um, of that responsibility needs to fall on founders or or leadership within the business. But when you can find investors who can add value, that's huge. And in our case, Tribe, um, very data focused and very experienced group. 
Um, you know, they've invested in some very successful businesses like Slack and Carta um, and have deep experience working with those teams to drive um, initiatives that have helped drive success. And so, you know, we're fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with them thinking through strategy, uh, you know, thinking through data and analytics where they're very, very experienced and helpful um, to help improve our existing infrastructure and, and move the business in the right direction. So, you know, but it's a case where, and I think that this is the, the right, um, I think that this is the right sort of uh, role and responsibilities breakdown, but it, this is certainly a case where, you know, they're not forcing any action on us you know, they're there to help and it can be legitimately helpful when we need them to be. And so, you know, that's, that's the right mix to be looking for. It's not always the case. Certain investors, you know, want to take board control and want to run a business on behalf of founders. I don't think that that's in anybody's best interest. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and it, that wouldn't be something that we would have been interested in ourselves. And luckily we found people who are more aligned. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing the, they might be opening a lot of doors for you by connecting you to uh, great uh, potential customers. Um, for us, it's less so about customers. I think that in some cases, you're gonna see VCs who have a customer um, customer base to sell into. I think that that would be usually enterprise companies where one single deal might make up you know, half of your year's pipeline or half of your quarter's pipeline. Um, for us, where we're higher volume, smaller businesses, um, it's hard to rely on investors for for um, for sales and marketing, but in our case, you know, they are, um, you know, they they have access to many other components of the business from an operational perspective um, that that have that have really been valuable to us so far. You know, wh whether that be again data science, uh, technology, general operations, finance, or or strategy, it, all of those things that they've got a, they've got a lot of. Um, uh, firepower and it's been very helpful for us so far. That's great. It seems that you found investors who are not willing, just willing to invest financially, but they are also willing to help you with strategy and uh, execution. So it seems like there is a great uh, match and fit here. Um, so your product is specifically meant for small businesses. Um, how do you define a small business for for us? Uh, as a target customer, what kind of revenue, what number of employees, um, what kind of, yeah, so how do you define small business for um, as a target market? Yeah, so I should I should correct myself. Um, by saying small business, I mean smaller than enterprise. And by enterprise, I really mean a thousand employees and up. Um, in our space, when you think about HR broadly, it's all about employee count. Um, you know, how many employees are, or within an organization really determines your approach to HR, um, your approach to organizational structure and design, and, and, and all of those things feed into what our system helps with. Um, and so really we're, we're meant for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, you know, our largest clients approach a thousand employees, um, but you know, really the bread and butter, I think of the Canadian ecosystem, when you think about the volume of companies that exist would be under 200. I think that 70% of Canadians are currently employed at companies that employ less than 200 people. And really there isn't a solution in place that is fantastic the way that we believe our system is or can be or continue to be in the future um, for that segment, but it's the largest employment segment in Canada. So uh, if you had to oversimplify, I would say it's 200 employees and under, but really the truth is that everything from, everything from, 
from one to a thousand and probably one day hundreds of thousands of employees is 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 where we're we're looking at okay that's uh, that's amazing and uh, how how did the uh, pandemic affect your uh, business and sales and operations um again so we we were somewhat fortunate to have been um guarded in in the way that um our business is operated uh, in terms of seeing the most negative down downsides or impacts um from the pandemic a being a software business you know we weren't forced to to shut our doors or or shut down entirely forced to work from home but we were already very um adept at working from home um you know right away though in march when everybody was making that shift alongside of us i think that you know whether we were you know we were talking about the vc landscape investment landscape earlier all the way through to what we do i think that a lot of people pressed pause on decision making so we had a bit of a slow month weren't sure what to expect going forward but as more people became aware that they would be working from home for a long period of time they've been they've been forced into rethinking the way that they work and it's just it's an unfortunate fact that HR has been left behind compared to most other verticals within a business or more, most of the teams within a business from a digitization and investment standpoint sales teams have salesforce or crms and that's become the norm you know accounting teams where once upon a time they use spreadsheets had all have their accounting software that they use to make their lives easier and make it easier to transition from working in an office to working at home living in the cloud in the hr world in canada most businesses are still using spreadsheets to manage employee data and other critical components of their job and so when they were forced to move from home there was a lot of interest that we saw in digital in digitizing their processes so we saw an increase in demand after march um that's really sustained through to today um and has and has benefited our our business so it it really you know we're feeling extremely fortunate to be in this position but the but the pandemic didn't have um a real negative impact on our business. Mhm. Mm and how did the pandemic affect you personally and how are you managing this time? That's a great question. I mean I mean every week is different. I I uh I think that initially I was overwhelmed like the, the the prior investment analyst in me was overwhelmed by you know looking at what the potential impact could be on the economy um i think that that is still in my head just given that we're not really through this um but over the course of the first few weeks i think that i was and most people that i've spoken to were able to sort of normalize and and adjust to the new emotions that i was feeling new emotions that everybody's been feeling as well as the working environment and have you know created a more repeatable sort of pattern for how to work and think that's that's more you know that's more tolerable i think that initially there was just too many things to think of and my every day every night my brain was was running and some of that was excitement and thinking about how to adjust the business and how to you know move forward and you know being faced with a challenge i think for me is always somewhat exciting but some of it was also you know scary to not be sure of what was going to happen the next day the next week the next month um but again today i think months later having normalized to both the emotional side and having had a little bit more you know experience now during the pandemic to provide clarity of what might be to come um you know feeling pretty good and excited about about uh you know what we're working on right now mm -hmm. that's interesting uh 
Um, well, Simon, it has been very nice uh, speaking with you and learning about yourself and also uh, human. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, and thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, and then thank you for having me on. Perfect. Uh, you want to share your website? Uh, how can people find you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, if, if people are interested, again, you know, in, in looking at something like Humi, which is intended to really remove administrative burden from managing HR, payroll, um, benefits, and, and really the entire back office from your business, um, you should check us out. Our website's www.humi.ca. That's H-U-M-I dot C-A. And um, we'd be happy to, to, to help however we can. Perfect. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode and you get a chance to learn from uh, Simon's uh, experience. And uh, as uh, Simon mentioned, you can visit, uh, you can contact him or his company to learn more. And uh, thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.